We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Bridgerson. And Jasmine Allnut. And we're here with... Women Worth Knowing. And you've got quite a few for us we today. We do have a plural episode. Women, a not women. A plethora. A plethora, uh, yes, plural plethora of women <laughs> to talk about today. And so, we're going to the Middle Ages. Yep, we're continuing on. You might remember in a previous episode, we well, a couple of them, we were doing some of the early church martyrs. And then I mentioned uh, last time a couple gals in the Middle Ages, um, Helena, the mother of Constantine. We talked about Monica, the mother of Augustine. And so we're going to One kinda, of my favorite people. Carry on. Oh, she's awesome. Yes. And we're going to kind of carry on with a few more gals. Um, some of these are pretty obscure. Some maybe might be slightly familiar to you. We'll see. But I wanted to start out with two friends who were pretty remarkable, Marcella and Paula. So some of our listeners might be familiar with the Latin Vulgate. Um, yeah, especially right. if you, yeah, if you grew up Catholic, maybe, or uh, something like that. Uh, the Vulgate was actually considered the authoritative Bible translation of the church for over a thousand years. The Catholic branch of the church uh, used it all the way up until the 1960s, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and so it was actually translated way back in the fourth century, the 300s, by one of the, who we called the great church fathers, the great fathers of the, of the early church. And his name was Jerome. And he, he translated this one Latin was the main language of the empire. So his whole goal was to put it into the lingua franca, the language of the Romans at that time, which had transitioned out of Greek into Latin. In fact, Jerome is kind of considered the father of Bible translation. He was the first to really go to the original text and translate. And that's something we take for granted now, but it was something that he did. But what most people don't know is that Jerome had help. (laughs) Um, There were two women, like I said, Marcella and her friend Paula that were really key figures in helping him with this Bible translation, which is pretty awesome. So um, in fact, it's kind of cool because early on when he was first getting to know these gals, they kind of intimidated him a little, kind of just taken aback by their zeal and their knowledge of the scriptures. In fact, probably even before he met them, they were sought out by many for their biblical wisdom and counsel. And so he was just floored by the zeal and the passion for the Bible that these women had. Um, Marcella was born into a noble, wealthy Roman family, and she wanted to devote her life to God from an early age. And so um, she was married, you know, there were a lot of arranged marriages at that time. And she had been in an arranged marriage, but her husband died when, gosh, only seven months into their marriage, like very early on. And so she really saw this as the Lord in his timing, opening up a door for her to just devote herself fully to him. She never remarried. She just kind of figured, well, that was what I had a heart for early on. So now I'm just going to walk in that and just pursue whatever the Lord opens up. And so she actually began one of the first women's Bible study groups. I'm I'm sure it wasn't like the first women's Bible study, but I thought, well, that's kind of fun. I don't know if we can call her the mother of women's Bible study necessarily, but I thought that was pretty neat. So when Jerome arrived in Rome in 382, uh, she already had this Bible study going and she invited him to come and teach at it. And that's what really got them connected and formed this really sweet friendship. She was always asking Jerome questions. And like I said, he was just amazed at how well she understood the word, uh, her desire to learn. And so uh, when Marcella found out about Jerome's desire to translate the Bible into Latin and, and, and do all of this work, she got her Bible study women together and said, hey, let's help him with this. And so they start learning the original Greek and Hebrew text of the Bible themselves 
so that they could assist him. You know, he would do some translation work, bring it to them to just kind of help through that editing process and all of that. And then later when Jerome left Rome, he still referred a lot of debates on biblical interpretation to Marcella. And so there were there were lay people, but even church leaders who would come to her to just grow in their understanding of the word of God. In fact, at one point, uh, even the, the Roman bishop or pastor, uh, he deferred to her advice concerning some heretical literature. He ran it by her, hey, what do you think about this? So, you know, quite a significant figure in the church in Rome in that era. Um, so she just kept, you know, faithfully spreading the light of God's word and truth in a very dark and pagan city. Rome, you know, always had that pagan influence, of course, but she really just shined, shone <laughs> for the Lord during that time. So um, in the year 410, when Rome fell, this was the first time that the city of Rome actually fell. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more of this later, but during an attack by a tribe called the Goths, some of you guys might've heard of them, but uh, Marcella's home was actually ransacked and she was beaten to death by the Goths during mm. that time, which was really tragic. But she had such a, a radiant testimony and part of her testimony was leading her friend Paula to Christ. And Paula also came from a influential Roman family, but they were, gosh, practically royalty. They claimed that their lineage could be traced back to Agamemnon. And Agamemnon actually, I think was more of a mythological figure, but you know, in Greco-Roman culture, that was, you know, you could be descended from the gods and all of that. So whatever the case may be, there was royalty in her blood. Her husband was connected to the line of Julius Caesar. So uh, very, very prominent. Um, in fact, she was so well-connected and wealthy that she actually owned the towns of Nicopolis and Actium. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? I was like, whoa, really? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> pretty remarkable connection she had. Yep. So she and her husband had five kids um, and he died in 380. So she's in her early 30s when he died, um, obviously still quite young. And she was pretty devastated about the whole thing. And that was when her friend Marcella introduced her to Jesus. And so she receives the Lord and becomes one of Marcella's eager Bible study group participants. And so she also, again, got to know Jerome when he started to come visit. And so when he left the study in Rome to go back to Jerusalem, uh, Paula decided with her daughter to go and join him so they could just continue to support and help and be an encouragement to his ministry. And so uh, they got settled in Bethlehem and Paula actually ended up founding three convents, a monastery, a church, a hospice. Remember, she was very well connected and wealthy. And so she just used all that she had and gave it to the Lord. And something that was really significant about her convents was she really wanted to institute. And again, I think this had to do with all the Bible translation work they'd been helping Jerome with. She really uh, made a point of instituting the practice of hand copying the scriptures. And that was going to become really, really important to preserving the Bible through the Middle Ages. Um, a lot of the reason we have so much, not just the Bible, but any ancient literature is because it was all preserved in the convents and monasteries. You know, also Jerome, I don't know if you know this, but he had a, a warning that he would put in, do you have that in your notes? He would put a warning before every scribe, like know that, um, I wish I had it directly, mm. but it was something along the lines, like know that this is just not any book. This is the holiest mm. of all mm. and such a sacred book. Pray before you start and realize that you're on holy ground. I mean, it was just oh, this it. amazing quote. I wish I had it. It's, I oh. taught doctrine years ago and it was in my notes oh, on yeah. the word of God. The scribe would also copy that and put it in the front of every Bible. Oh, I love it. The reverence. He mm -hmm. had such reverence for the word. And mm -hmm. he also had such a passion for common people to be able to read it. That's why he put it in Latin. Because mm -hmm. at the time, that's what that's everybody right. spoke. That's it was right. Such a, a vision he had for that. And so I, I love that. Paula, you know, helped him again, came alongside him in that translation work. In fact, he dedicated a lot of the Vulgate translation to her, which a lot of people don't know. 
uh, along with several of his commentaries. And it's really neat because people criticized him for putting a woman's name on his Bible studies. Like, what are you doing? That's not appropriate. Um, and, and yet he said, I love this quote, these people do not know that while Barak trembled, Deborah saved Israel, that <laughs> Esther delivered from supreme peril the children of God. Is it not to women that our Lord appeared after his resurrection? Yes, and the men could then blush for not having sought what women found. And I love that. I mean, this was a guy, you know, who really, he knew the word, he understood the heart of God for women, and he had no problem um, incorporating them, really um, elevating them and giving them a place in his ministry. And I love that, um, you know, as much as we love the early church fathers, some of them kind of slipped back into cultural prejudices. They're human, you know, and made mistakes. And so Jerome really stands out because he understood the value of what Paula and Marcella uh, brought to the table and just their walk with the Lord. So I, I just love him for that. Um, he actually called Paula one of the marvels of the Holy Land. <laughs> and so she died in the year 404 and she was buried in Bethlehem. So those are Jerome's buddies who helped with that Bible translation. Now, um, before we get into the next girl uh, I wanted to talk next about. Girl. Next I girl. I love that. I don't know. I put gal in my she's notes. She's older than you. Yeah, she's a little older. Yeah. <laughs> she's about 1,700 years older than me. But anyway. Yes. Um, I, I don't want to get way in the weeds on this, but I think it'll help kind of build the context a little bit here. So you guys hopefully remember Constantine because we talked about him a little bit with his mom, Helena. And he actually really transformed the Roman Empire and the church when he became a Christian. And so I just, by way of background, let me just explain this for a second because it's really, really important to understanding what happened over the course of church history. So the Roman custom, the Roman practice was to bring religion and state together in society for the purpose of unity. That was the whole purpose behind emperor worship, all of that. And so when Constantine got saved, he brought that perspective into his Christianity and brought the church under himself as the emperor. So he kind of created that whole idea of the church and state ruling together in society that, you know, unfortunately <laughs> was propagated for centuries. Um, but his conversion also brought a lot of pagans into the church who were seeking political advancement. I think we might have mentioned this, trying to get in good with Constantine. And so they would show up at church and they started to bring in a lot of um, unfortunate pagan practices into the church. And so we see things like holy relics develop and venerating the saints, praying to Mary. All of this stuff started to become more and more a part of church practice and teaching from his time forward, unfortunately. Uh, now, another thing Constantine did was to move the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople. And eventually what that would do is it would split the empire into Eastern and Western halves. And because the church and the state were married, the church would also be separated into Eastern and Western branches. And that's where we get the Roman Catholic Church. And the Eastern the Orthodox. is Eastern Orthodox, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that brings us to the next gal. So I did have a reason for sharing that. <laughs> and her name is Pulcheria. We were discussing before the podcast, is it Pulcheria? Because that'd be the Greek. We don't know how to pronounce her name. But she was the empress of the Eastern part of the Roman Empire at Constantinople. She was the only woman to ever rule any part of the empire. And so she took the throne when she was 15 years old and became a very highly accomplished, educated ruler. Uh, she actually really wanted to be a nun. She longed for the monastic life, but she accepted the responsibility because she had a brother, but he was a lot younger. Her name was Theodosius. 
and he's a really another key figure in church history. We're not going to get way into his story, of course, but you know, she, he wasn't of age yet. And so she said, okay, fine. This is the, my responsibility. I will rule until he's old enough. Well, by the time he was old enough, they ended up actually deciding to rule together for the next 10 years. And now remember, like I said before with Constantine, this was when church and state ruled together. So even though Pulcheria was an empress, she also was kind of a spiritual leader to some extent because there was that intermingling, right or wrong, that's just how it was. <laughs> And so during Pulcheria's reign, the church had a lot of controversy that, that it was dealing with. Um, and some of it had to do with the decision of uh, Pulcheria's family members. Um, her mom, Eudoxia, was ridiculously extravagant and she claimed to be a Christian and all of this, but she commissioned a statue to be made of herself. She did a lot of really questionable things. And uh, the great preacher, John Chrysostom, actually rebuked her publicly. It started this big mess that Pulcheria kind of had to do some damage control on. And then there came these debates about the deity and humanity of Jesus, which we call Christology. And this is something we take for granted today. I know some of you might be thinking, why is this important? Well, you know, we take a lot of things, I think, for granted. It's just like, oh, we just know Jesus was fully God and fully man. But there was a time when this was really heavily under attack. And there were people trying to undermine this truth. And so what happened well, was... Well, even before oh, yeah, her, it happened during Constantine's time. Yes. Oh, gosh. This was so just such a drama. It goes back to Constantine's time. Yeah. Constantine cared more about the unity of the church than the soundness of doctrine. Yeah. And he yeah, actually, an yeah. right, he turned against one of his old friends and uh, sided with, who was it? He sided with, uh, anyway, somebody who was... Was it at the Council of Nicaea? It, no, they okay. had the Council of Nicaea, oh, before, which was okay. to establish the deity of Christ. Right. Because it was called into question. And that's when Gnosticism was really it making... Was really, yep, making waves for sure. And Gnosticism teaches that... Oh, Arius. Are you Arius. Of Arius? It was Arius. Oh, Arius was yes. terrible. Yeah. And that's where we get the Arian heresy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so Arian and Gnosticism and Arian is that Jesus was a God, but not the God. And there was a time so when a the sun was God. not. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. There was a time he didn't exist. Mm -hmm. All of that. Yeah. So, I mean, really dangerous stuff that, again, we don't always consider that right. the church had to defend against. And so that was part of the problem. Kind of like what you were saying with Constantine. Theodosius was thinking as an emperor. And so, um, you know, this is Pulcheria's brother, and they're co-reigning together. Well, Theodosius named this guy named Nestorius to be the patriarch of Constantinople against her better judgment. She's like, yes. I don't know if this is a good idea. But Nestorius taught the heresy that Jesus was not divine until um, he was baptized by John. Yes, you and know? that's so, the Nestorians. Yep, exactly. So another, <laughs> yep, after the Arians come the Nestorians. And... So Pulcheria really had to, like I said, step in and, and bring solid biblical doctrine to do damage control for her family's mistakes because she knew that Nestorius was off. And so she brought in uh, this other bishop. His name was Cyril of Alexandria, and he affirmed the full deity and humanity of Jesus. So fortunately, they were able to call a church council, get rid of Nestorius. But in the process, Pulcheria got so persecuted um, for taking this stand that she was forced into seclusion by his followers. Her life was in danger. So she gets removed from the picture for a while and goes into exile. Well, unfortunately, that meant Theodosius, who never was as grounded as she was, that left him to kind of fend for himself. He ends up following uh, another advisor who led him into more heresy, <laughs> a guy named Eutychus, who said Jesus only had one nature. And so in 451, Pulcheria was called back 
to set up an ecumenical widespread church council. And that was the fourth council of Nicaea, where they really just knocked out all of these heresies that had been continuing to spread. And then Theodosius died in this process, and that conferred all power to Pulcheria. So she really was able to, like I said, root out a lot of the heresies and really help at that church council establish a solid biblical creed that affirmed the deity and the humanity of Jesus. In fact, the Pope uh, expressed his gratitude and said to her that the whole Roman church exceedingly congratulates you on the works of your faith. And she was called an ornament of the Catholic faith. And so because of all she did as a defender of the faith, and you know, she's not as well known as some of these church fathers and stuff, but man, she played a really critical role here. And so she is considered historically one of the great defenders of uh, the truth of God's word. So she's really important uh, for that reason. And she did marry, though. She married mm. Marcion. Mm. Do you have anything Mar about that? Oh, gosh. Well, Marcion's another. Is that the Marcion that like caused no. all those problems? Oh, there's a different one. Okay, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> another bag of. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. But I know the Marcion. Mm -hmm. I know who you're talking about. No. Oh, boy. This is a different Marcion, but okay. she married. But, you know, it's interesting because, again, when you're going back that far, you have to try to separate myth mm -hmm. from truth. Yep. And supposedly she remained a virgin even though she married. Well. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's like, I think that's because of, you know, at times the the Catholic Church's view on... On celibacy. On right. celibacy. I'm more set mm -hmm. apart and holy to God mm -hmm. if I don't... Yeah, that's right. true. Yeah, and that, I mean, that could have happened. There were some, you know, people, there have been people in history that have done that. So that is Pulcheria. And then I want to switch gears a little bit here. And uh, we're moving ahead about 100, 100 years, well, maybe 50 years from the time of Pulcheria. And I want to talk about uh, a family, a little bit of a family lineage here, starting with a gal named Clotilda. Now, I mentioned before when we were talking about Marcella, remember I said that the Goths, uh, which would be considered what we would call barbarians, okay? You guys might, those of you who are listening, you might be familiar with uh, the term barbarian and the barbarian tribes that ravaged Europe. That's where we have the Goths, the Visigoths, the Angles, the Saxons, the Huns, uh, later on the Vikings, um, not the Minnesota Vikings, a different one. <laughs> but we have all these different groups. So those might be familiar names to you. Uh, they were all the tribes that would eventually, you know, tear apart the Roman Empire and divided into really what has become Europe. That's This is really where Europe comes from, is from all these barbarian groups that started coming in and ransacking the Roman Empire. Now, the Goths ransacked the city of Rome in the year 410, and that was the first time that had ever happened. And so the Roman Empire in the West was getting weaker and weaker, and eventually it fell completely in the year 472, as all of these barbarians took over. Now, the greatest of the tribes of the barbarians in that period, which we would call the early Middle Ages, were called the Franks. And uh, in case you can't guess, they settled modern day France. Let's read it, France, Franks, okay? So fun fact. Now, all of these people, obviously all these pagan peoples are coming in, worshiping their own gods, and there's a noted lack of Christian influence. Although it's really sweet if you, you know, study church history, you start seeing the Lord put on people's hearts uh, the desire, you know, some of the Roman citizens that were just watching the empire collapse around them, they have this desire to bring these tribes to Christ. And they viewed it as an opportunity, which I thought was just so awesome. Instead of being scared and like, oh my gosh, we hate these people. They said, hey, this is an opportunity for the gospel to go to new people groups. And so, you know, you have all of these pagan peoples, a lack of Christian influence, but the first indication of change before the missionaries really started going out was when the heathen king of the Franks, his name was Clo 
Clovis, he married a woman named Clotilda. And Clotilda was a Christian, which was very rare and unusual. Her dad was Chilperic, the King of Burgundy. Now, we don't know a lot about Clotilda personally, but uh, her influence as a believer on her husband and family and country is what makes her so remarkable. So she married Clovis on the condition that she would be allowed to practice her faith in Jesus. And he agreed. He was very resistant to the gospel, but he said, okay, fine. You know, you can do your thing. Uh, we just need to, you know, we're doing a marriage as an alliance here, and this is a political thing. And I, I, you know, presumably he loved her as well. But she wrote to him in a letter and said, the gods you venerate are nothing as they are unable to provide the needs of others. They are idols made of wood, stone, or metal. The God who must be worshiped is he whose word brought out of nothing, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all they contain. So she was very bold and upfront with him, but he wouldn't budge. He was like, nope, I am not, you know, whatever. I, I want my gods, you do your thing. So uh, when their first child died and then the second contracted a serious illness, Clovis took this as confirmation that Clotilda's God was causing problems. And so uh, he figured, hey, if our children would have been dedicated to my gods, this wouldn't have happened. So there's a lot of tension in the home, obviously. And yet, a couple years down the road, one day, Clovis was in the midst of a, a really fierce battle. And kind of like what happened to Constantine, he decided kind of as a last resort to cry out to the Christian God. And the enemy just miraculously turned and fled. It was, it could, was nothing short of a miracle and he knew it. He's like, there is no reason for this to happen. And so that really fully convinced him of the reality and the power of Clotilda's God. And so he became the first major barbarian leader to accept Christ, which would be huge because then he persuaded his people to do the same. And on Christmas Day, 496, 3,000 Franks converted to Christianity following his example. And so you really, and this is interesting, if you look at just the way things played out in the Middle Ages, you see God's hand in this because the Franks were the strongest barbarian group. They were also the first and only at the time tribe to accept Orthodox Christianity. Remember we mentioned the Arians and the Arian heresy. That was really rampant, but they accepted the true gospel biblical message. And so a lot of churches in France were founded under Clovis and Clotilda, and she initiated a godly heritage through her family. Her granddaughter, Bertha, her great-granddaughter, Ethelberga, who I'll mention in a second here, they also continued to spread uh, the Christian faith in Europe. And so, you know, Clotilda never really lived to see the fruit of all of their labor, but she is really directly responsible for the furtherance of the gospel in medieval Europe um, during those early years of the barbarian tribes coming in and taking over and stuff like that, not just in her own kingdom, but in the kingdoms of her descendants. And so I think, you know, if we're looking for, you know, just lessons and takeaways here from these lives, what a reminder to those of you who might even have unbelieving spouses, unbelieving children, you know, continue to pray and, and be that example, kind of like what we saw with Monica and the influence she had on her husband and then her son, Augustine. I mean, you really never know what kind of influence that's going to have. I think so. that's so inspirational too. There's a book, it's called, I think, Beloved Unbeliever. Um, hmm. And it was written by Lee Strobel. Mm -hmm. And it's an excellent book about how his wife, his wife talking about how she prayed for him and how he got saved. Mm. And I think that's just so amazing the influence that she had yeah. on her husband so that when he was in trouble and when he was in war he knew to turn yep to exactly. the lord and knew who to cry out to mm. so she mm -hmm. died in 545 yeah. yeah and she was buried so you can actually see her tomb at saint martin of tours 
She died of natural causes, and she was buried next to her husband. Wow. That's so fun. That's cool. I didn't actually have that in my head. In the Church of the Holy Apostles. Well, I just think, you know, now it's called the Abbey of St. Genevieve. But I think it's interesting when you can actually, because people you're talking about, you can actually sometimes see their tombs. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So for those of you who are like, and that was, that's important too, because like Cheryl said, when you go back this far in history, sometimes you have to sort out myth from reality. But to know, like, no, these were legit, like, these were real, real people, like, mm-hmm. living in a real time, and, and God really used them. Um, in fact, I just want to mention briefly, too, just piggybacking on Clotilda, I mentioned her granddaughter, Bertha. Um, she really followed closely in her grandmother and mother's footsteps, and she became the first Christian queen of England, which is kind of fun. When her marriage was arranged to an unsaved king, the king of East Anglia, his name was Ethelbert, these names... I mean, these are just like the middle medieval names are bizarre, but yes, <laughs> uh, that's again part of uh, ancient England, East Anglia. She consented to marry on the condition that she would also be allowed to practice her faith. She kind of just took up that same, you know, again that example of her grandma. And as with Clovis, Ethelbert agreed, and soon he became a Christian as well. This opened the door for Christianity to spread in England, especially through a missionary named Augustine, a totally different Augustine, but he was a kind of like a church planter that was sent uh, from the Pope at the time to come up. And uh, he actually started the church in Canterbury, which became, you know, where we get the Archbishop of Canterbury, for those of you who have, are familiar with that and familiar there, with England. There's a book called um, Trial and Triumph. I forgot the author right now, but he talks about Ethelbert in it and just how God used him. Amazing story. Yes. And he was really cool. I'm pretty sure it was him uh, that he didn't just promote mass conversion with his people. He wanted them to all make a genuine decision for Christ. So like a true evangelist heart for his people, like, please turn to Jesus. I'm not going to force you. (laughs) I love that about him. So uh, many churches were dedicated to Bertha and Ethelbert. Their own home, which they gave to Augustine, is now the present day location of Canterbury Cathedral. So Really, really cool. And then one last gal was the daughter of Bertha. And so again, these generations here of believers. And so kind of part of that Christian heritage running through this remarkable family, we see Ethelberga, (laughs) Bertha's daughter, walking in the ways of the Lord as well. And she married Edwin of Northumbria. And that's the guy for whom Edinburgh, Scotland is named. And uh, as her mother and great-grandmother before her, she maintained such a strong walk with the Lord that her husband eventually was also one to Christ after many years of observing the faithful witness of his wife. And so Edwin becomes the first Christian king of Kent. And Ethelberga established some really important churches. Again, they had just such a significant influence for, for the kingdom of God during their reign. And, and, and you could just trace so much that came out of that godly influence. And so there's another gal, the great niece, which I'm going to save for a future podcast. But you just see the influence compound and continue on, as we've seen in so many of our podcasts, the, the links and connections. But I, I love that. This little known stuff about you know, medieval history. And well, Christian don't you influence. think too, I mean, when you sincerely walk with the Lord, mm. it it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. It's inspiring. And again, you know, these husbands that um, almost came to Christ because they fell back on their wise faith. Like, yeah. well, nothing else is working. Yeah. I'll call out to Jesus. <laughs> Ta-da. You know? Yep. Yep. And Jesus avails. Mm. And so you see that too. Like, you know, there's that scripture, train a child, um, yeah, and the way she should go. And when he is old, he will not depart. It, the idea is that there might be a time 
but this is where they can fall back. So that's why these women are so worth knowing. I believe so. Yes, definitely. So thank you for joining us on this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Again, uh, we're talking about women from the Middle Ages, but we would love to know if there's women in our age. Yes. Or just even a previous generation that you know of that you think we ought to highlight on this podcast. We'll do the research if you'll just give us enough information. Um, and we'd love to even do an honorable mention. So please write yeah. us at wwk at cccm.com that's our email address you can also go to women.cccm.com and there's a link there or to cheryl's website graciouswords.com there's a link on that as please well. write us we'd <laughs> love to hear from you thank you for joining us on this edition this is cheryl and jasmine saying thank you goodbye <laughs> thank you for listening to women worth knowing with cheryl broderson and jasmine allnut for more information on cheryl visit cherylbroderson.com or follow her on instagram or facebook You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.